It's time to get outside. This is KSL Outdoors, brought to you by Trax Power Sports. Two hours of stories and information on hunting, fishing, and high adventure. Our host is Tim Hughes on KSL News Radio. Welcome in, hour number two, and the final one for another week here. And uh, we're glad you're listening along here on a Saturday. We record this program on Thursday for your enjoyment, as live as we say in the business here uh, for KSL Outdoors Radio. Navinovsky is still with me here, and coming up in the, the next few minutes, we'll do some road tripping with the boys, Bob Grove and Mark Wade. Haven't yet heard from the guys to uh, tell us where they may be headed. Although, uh, Navi, I was just looking at uh, one of the last things I did in the outdoors with those guys was to hike the um, Narrows down in, uh, in uh, Zion. And when we were there, it was like, you know, uh, calf deep maybe in most places we were hiking and narrows opened which is good news but i was just looking at some of the pictures of people that are armpit deep trying to make <laughs> make that hike uh up the narrows chest deep would be a little crazy and uh fatiguing i'm sure you know that's a that can be really dangerous i mean you never know <laughs> When there's rain, that's not a place to be. No, no. And as a matter of fact, when they do get rain, they'll post it and make sure that everybody stays out of there. But they said park officials note that walking the route can still be challenging with frequent mid-thigh deep crossings and uh, chest deep pools at 70 cubic feet per second. So uh, don't think it would be the experience that we had the last time we were down there. But uh, it's still an unbelievable opportunity. I think I'd just wait a few uh, more weeks or maybe a month or longer before you give it a try. Hey, we're going to talk bats here this morning, uh, Navi. Let me get the appropriate music for you. This will bring back some memories for everybody. We actually have the Batman with us. I don't know. Anybody ever call you that, Sean? Uh, yeah, pretty often actually. It's uh, <laughs> kind of become the the nickname for me. So I, you know, but I enjoy it. It's it's been good. We're talking with uh, Sean Plattis, who is the sensitive species biology. What else besides bats falls into that category of sensitive species? Yeah, so I work with a lot of the terrestrial species. So anything that we've kind of got up on land. So everything from the migratory birds to some other small mammals outside of bats. And then um, sometimes we'll do some amphibian reptile work, but that mostly falls into more of our aquatics department. But mainly we're working with the small small mammals and um, migratory birds are kind of the key sensitive species that I work with. Navi, you mentioned it when we started the show. Bats kind of get a bad rap, but uh, they actually do some good. Oh, yeah. They have a place in our ecosystem. Again, you know, the vampire, the rabies, yeah, that kind of gives them a bad name. But really, they're important. Let's walk through some of the benefits of uh, having bats around, Sean. Yeah, definitely. So one of the biggest things that we have, especially here in Utah, is most of our bats, primarily all of them, are insectivorous bats, meaning that they consume and they eat insects. So if you're ever out and you're getting mosquitoes or if you're getting pest insects that are affecting crops or anything in the agricultural industry, bats are going to be really essential and provide a big ecosystem service to uh, controlling insect pest control. And that also kind of feeds down the line to helping farmers and the agricultural industry save money and um, having to spend on insecticides and pesticides and things like that that can also affect the environment in other ways. So in Utah, really our large thing is uh, pest control. But outside of Utah, you have bats that are nectivorous bats, 
that will feed on nectar. So for like cacti in Arizona, you've got other bats that really help with kind of agave and pollinating flowers. And then tourism. Tourism has also become a larger thing that kind of have provided um, humans interest in kind of going out and recreating. In Texas and the south central United States, you get a lot of tourism going out to those areas to go watch these mass emergences of, of bats coming out. And even here in Utah, we we like to present our bats and get the public involved in kind of getting out and seeing some bats and stuff up close. So that's kind of an upcoming thing as well. Yeah, uh, and we were actually set to talk about a uh, bat seminar that was coming up or is coming up next week, uh, but we're told it's sold out. So I guess that's a good sign. People are interested. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good to have people interested. I, I agree with you. Bats do get a bad reputation, and it's there's a lot of misconceptions that we hear about bats, but really they're one of the most essential providers for our ecosystem, and they're an indicator species, meaning that they also – kind of show how the environmental health is doing. So if we have good bat health, good bat populations out there, then we know that the ecosystem all in all is is really in good health. So they're, they're helpful for that, for that reason. Not but, yeah, the I was going to say the division does put on some public bat nights throughout the summers. Um, so it's a good thing to stay up on Facebook or the DWR's posts on Instagram or other social media, and you can kind of see when we put out some public bat nights. They are a little creepy looking, Navi, and uh, a face like yours and mine that only a mother could love. You know, I've caught a lot of them uh, accidentally. I'm not exaggerating either. When you're fly casting in the evening, all of a sudden, bang, your rod gets hit from behind. And first thing you know, you got a bat on the line. Because they do. They attack my flies as I cast, especially in the evening. Mostly on the Madison River for some reason, but frankly, I've caught them everywhere. Have you heard that, Sean? I have heard a lot of things about bats, but I mean that doesn't surprise me. They're they're really agile. They uh, one misconception is that bats are blind. That's not true. They have really good eyesight, and along with using echolocation to locate their prey and something like potentially on a fishing line, that that doesn't surprise me. I mean, bats can uh, go after a lot of things, and they're pretty agile. So. Yeah. I grew up in Pocatello, Idaho, and, and it's funny that we're talking about this uh, this week because uh, we were sharing memories on Facebook with my siblings. And my sister chimed in a couple of days ago on my Facebook page and said, do you remember going to the park in the evening when we would take our shoes off and throw them up in the air and the bats would dive after them? Uh, it was a source of entertainment for us when we were in high school or elementary <laughs> school or junior high. Yeah, yeah, you get, um, I mean, bats kind of will come around where humans are because we've got areas where we've got light, so We've got insects attracting around parks and locations like that. So, yeah, you kind of get bats coming into human-dominated environments just because we're attracting uh, more insects and things like that. Um, but, yeah, they're curious. They're also a lot of species. We've got quite a few different species in Utah, 18 species total, and they all have their different characteristics. You've got some really curious um, species, and then you've got the more species that are kind of solitary, like to be out on their own. But, yeah, they all kind of have these different characteristics. They all look really different. They all kind of fit into their ecological niche in, in different ways. And so it's, it's pretty interesting to, to work with them and see what each species does and kind of how they fit and their different characteristics. What warnings do you give people about being around or interacting with bats? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things is what you kind of had mentioned was rabies. So rabies is a big, scary thing. It's not anything that you want to mess with or deal with. And the problem is, and why bats, I think, get such a bad reputation, is rabies 
when we most people come into contact with bats or when they see bats might be when a bat is maybe sick or it's outside on the ground during the daytime. So that's a really tall telltale sign that when we've got a sick bat and that's kind of when people are coming across bats. And a lot of times when we test those bats, because they are sick, you know, we do see that they have rabies, but all in all in the bat populations, rabies is just as fatal to bats as it is to humans. So less than an estimated 1% of all bats together have any kind of rabies. So I think that's the biggest thing. And then along with that is just when we interact with bats, if we have bats out during the daytime or if we're seeing bats when we wouldn't expect to be seeing them, that's when we don't really want to mess with them. And um, you never want to be picking up a bat or messing with a bat just because that puts you at risk of exposure for something like that. So always make sure that you either contact someone like the Division of Wildlife Resources or a uh, animal control company that can come out and, and help um, in those case scenarios. So we don't ever recommend for the public or anyone to kind of take a bat into their own care just because rabies isn't something that you want to mess with but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's prominent in the population. Yeah, Nami, we have this uh, discussion when we talk about rattlesnakes, too, that they're not out there hunting humans. Uh, they're, uh, they want to be left alone in the terms of uh, rattlesnakes, or in the case of rattlesnakes. But with uh, the bats, it just sounds, Nami, like they're curious of humans. Right, right. And, you know, I'll tell you what, I wouldn't put them in the same category. I'm afraid of snakes, man, you I want anything to do with snakes. Bats are all right. I think they're kind of furry. Don't touch them, but they're, they are cute. Yeah. Anything you want to uh, tag on here, Sean, as we wrap things up? Uh, yeah. I think one of the other big things that kind of comes along with when we're talking about bats is, you know, when you think and you learn about different species and different groups of animals and taxa, you kind of start to learn that everything is kind of going through their own um, – troubles and issues and so with bats we have something called white nose syndrome and that is a disease that has been spreading across the united states and it was introduced to the united states in the early 2000s um in the east along the east coast and has since kind of spread we haven't detected it here in utah but we've detected it in surrounding some surrounding states and it can be really detrimental to some of these bat species so i think kind of educating and informing people about white nose syndrome um it's a fungus so uh, insects hibernating bats mostly. So when bats hibernate, it kind of overtakes their uh, immune system and kind of shuts them down, and it can be really detrimental to the population. Mm. But educating informing the public about things like white-nose syndrome and other things that the wildlife is struggling with I think is important. It's not anything that affects humans, but we it's good for us to be educated about what's happening in wildlife populations as yeah. well and yeah. how they're being affected and you know, declines and things like that, that we might be seeing. And, For sure. And then spreading that information, you know, the more information and education we get out there, the more that people are aware and can care. And then, you know, that change moves up the line to legislative change and, and things like that. So well, we can get, with education comes a lot of, a lot of motivation. Yeah. Hopefully we've done our part in getting some of that information out here today. Thanks for being our Batman. Yeah, thank you guys. I appreciate it. Sean Plattis with the Division of Wildlife Resources Sensitive Species Biologist. We will uh, take a break. We'll do some road tripping with Bob and Mark when we come back, so don't go away. More of KSL Outdoors Radios coming up next. It is time to do a little road tripping with the boys. Bob and Mark are back with us for another week here on the show. On the road again, 
I don't know where we're headed, but uh, it's hot, I can tell you that. And so we thought we'd focus on the heat and how to keep yourself safe when you're playing in the outdoors. Mark Wade, good to talk to you again. Thanks for coming back. Always good to be with you. And uh, Bob Grove, speaking of heat, Southern Utah, looks like you're going to be back in the hundred and what five degree range today. Oh yeah, it's uh, the heat is on. I mean, we were enjoying that wave of cooler weather. I mean, we got all the way through June without triple digits. That's, yeah. I can't remember that ever happening down here. But now uh, somebody flipped the switch. Yep. And here in the north, it's been the same, where we've had cooler temps. Uh, We're recording this on Thursday, of course, but uh, we've had cloud cover all day today and just a slight rain running. We've had a string, Mark, it seems like, uh, stories of people that have been getting themselves into a bit of trouble. And it's something we talked about last week with the guys that were trying to make the row from uh, Monterey, California, over to the Hawaiian Islands, and just decided at some point that they needed to preserve whatever energy they had left to get the boat safely back to the California coast rather than finding themselves stranded somewhere else. People forget that when you uh, head out somewhere, you're only halfway on a return trip. That's right. You know, it's a great idea to have plenty of water. Bob would be one of those that would remind, he reminded me earlier as we were talking about this, that it's good to prehydrate. It's actually good to get some water, some liquids, some electrolytes inside your body before you go, because if you if you start to feel symptoms of heat exhaustion or heat stroke, you're already kind of past the point of what, what you already needed, and you're and you're beyond that point. So start by prehydrating. Yeah, and carry more water, Bob, than you think you're going to need, because if you do get lost or have to take a little different route, you could be out there longer than you expected. Oh, yes. I mean, water is salvation in the deserts, and especially in these hot areas. I, uh, I, tell, I have a, a rule of thumb with my groups when we're on tour. I tell them I, I provide a lot of water. I provide all the water in the van, and I tell them I want them to drink so much that if they fall, they splash. <laughs> and I tell them that. And if you wait, if you wait until you're thirsty, you waited too long. Yeah. You need to continually hydrate throughout the day. And as Mark said before, going out uh, – for your outdoor activities. How do you treat heat exhaustion if you recognize it in somebody you're with, Mark? Well, one of the things is, is you, you, you've got to take a, a look at how they're acting, right? You've got to see how they're responding to things. And if they start to get slow and non-responsive, then, uh, Bob, you've got a, a routine that you, you say. You say to raise their head if they're red, and if they're pale, you raise their raise legs or raise their raise their tail their tail tail yeah well and you know you want to cool them down if you're showing signs of heat exhaustion by um, you know getting a headache you're starting to feel nauseous uh, you're lethargic you know those are signs of heat exhaustion you want to get into a cooler area sit in a comfortable area in the shade maybe loosen your clothes uh, get some uh, fluids into you, especially electrolytes. You know, if you have a Gatorade or something like that is really important. So, you know, just you got to recognize the symptoms and not continue going on if you are experiencing heat exhaustion. You don't want it to turn into anything worse than that. Yeah, you talk clothes. Hats and sunscreen are a given, but I think it's counterintuitive maybe to some people, Mark, to wear a long sleeve when you're going to be out in really hot temperatures. But I find that that helps, and if you can find a way to wet it down, maybe with a stream or a river, 
it's going to help provide, uh, you know, keeping your body temperature down. Yeah, sometimes people will, will wet a scarf or a, uh, a rag or something, put it around their neck. You can wet your hat down and put that on your head to keep it cool. And they make some really great materials these days that are, are going to wick the, you know, keep you cooler, actually, even with a long sleeve uh, shirt on. And they have some of them come with hoods. We were looking today, and some of them even come with little masks to protect you from your sun, your nose, and so on. So they're sun protectant, and they uh, can even still be cool. One thing that uh, people think about, and obviously it makes sense, you're going to go to higher elevations, Bob, to find cooler air. But that also means you're a little closer to the sun, and you might uh, have, besides altitude sickness, you might actually get more sun up high. Yeah, you know, we spend a lot of time in a high elevation. Utah is a very high state being on top of the Colorado Plateau in the central and southern part and then plateaus on top of that. So our average elevations are well above what they are in most places. And people who travel here from sea level really experience that very quickly, a shortness of breath. And this can get serious. A lot of folks that I see at Bryce Canyon at 8,000 plus feet hike down into the canyon, of course, going down, gravity is your friend, but coming back up and they're hiking at that elevation on steep grades, they quickly find out that there's a shortness of breath. They start getting a headache, you know, and they get that, that, uh, those symptoms of, um, you know, high altitude illness. And so you need to gradually acclimate to these areas. But as most visitors do, they're here for only a short time and never have the opportunity to really adapt to it. The best thing to do if you're experiencing high symptoms of high altitude illness, if you're at 8,000 feet or higher, is to drop down below that elevation. Yeah. Uh, there's something on this list I had never thought of, but uh, Mark, it's a great point as we wrap things up here that uh, it's always good to look behind you as you travel to recognize return routes. You know what it looks like ahead, but if you don't recognize what's going on the other way, you might struggle and get yourself lost on the way back. Exactly right. You know, everything looks different the opposite direction. And if you're not paying attention to what you're coming back to, it will look very different and you can easily get lost. Yeah. Boy, this is also timely with this heat, but uh, we encourage people to get out and enjoy. Know where you're going. Make sure you have the proper uh, hydration and the proper gear to go along with you, and you'll have uh, a great memory down the road. Bob, Mark, thank you. You bet, Tim. Road tripping again with uh, Bob and Mark. You go to roadtripping with Bob and Mark.com. We'll take a break and come back with more in a minute.